Good morning, folks. Great to see you this morning. And uh, if you're here for the first time, welcome. My name's Steve. I'm one of the leaders. It's great, great to have you with us on Cornerstone. I come with greetings from Imago Day Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. That's where I was last week preaching at my friend's church, Tony Marida. If you've been a visitor um, to Cornerstone in the last few weeks, or even last year as well, you would have received a book called Love Your Church. It was written by my friend Tony. I had the privilege of preaching at his church last week, and they send their greetings all the way from Raleigh, North Carolina. Isn't it wonderful, folks, that we have people all around the world praying for us? No? Yes, great. You can respond. Come on, let's be alive. Let's be alive. It is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to know that people who we do not know are praying for us and praying for us today that Jesus is made famous amongst us. Please, folks, let's never lose sight of the wonder it is to be part of the, the glorious global church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We had a young girl who came to church last week here. I wasn't here. And she, um, she stayed with us, with Sean and I and our family. She came from um, a part of Europe, and she came, and she was coming just to be part of the language school in, in, in Liverpool. And uh, Sean was taking her for her first time to the to the language school and said the child said what do you like to do she said i like to read she said how oh, do you like to read she said yeah, i like to read but what i'd really like to do is read the bible so this isn't a christian language school she's like are you a christian she says i am a christian i'm a secret christian and her and her mother are secret christians because they're part of a religion that obviously would not have that so we've got brothers and sisters, and she had the chance for the first time in 18 years to come to church last week, praise the Lord, and worship with us. Folks, not only do we have people all around the world who are praying for us, by God's grace, last week, and you didn't know, we're able to encourage somebody that has never, ever been to a church service and worship with God's people. And let's pray that this young lady, I don't need to give names and details, but let's pray that she finds a community of people that she can do life with. Amen? Let's never take for granted the wonder of what it is to be blessed by God's people all around the world, even those that we don't know now, but one day when Jesus comes back, or if we enjoy glory with him, we'll get to meet them, which is going to be great. Amen? Amen. You join us today at the beginning of a series that we're going to be doing in the book of Nehemiah, and when you came in, you should have received one of these little, these cool booklets. There's Nehemiah, Rebuild, Restore, Renew, and these are to just help you take notes on a Sunday morning. And, but also, there are some questions in there that you can do on your own, but also bring these to your gospel community gatherings, and these are the things that we're going to be working on. For those of us who were together when we went through the book of Exodus um, at the beginning of this year, what a blessing it was to have these and to use these together. So can I encourage you, if you've got them, take some notes. If you've got them, think through the questions for your gospel community uh, gatherings this week, and that will be great. So if you've got a Bible, turn to the book of Nehemiah, which is... Sort of, go to the middle of your Bible and turn left. Go to the middle of the Bible, turn left. It's after the book of Ezra and before the book of Esther. And you'll find the book of Nehemiah. Now you'll see that the book of Nehemiah is in the center pretty much of the Bible. But in fact, chronologically, when we look at the story of the Bible, the book of Nehemiah is actually the last book of the Old Testament. So it might not be in the place, but it's the last book of the history that we have of the Old Testament. It's where we see the last glimpse of the Old Testament history before the curtain comes down, and then there is silence for 400 years till the angels of God declare the news of the coming and the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus 
Christ. Now, Nehemiah is an Old Testament narrative, folks, that tells the story of God's people returning from exile in a foreign land. And Israel is no longer a mighty nation, but rather Israel is a broken, defeated, and vulnerable people. The book of Nehemiah is the story of God through His people seeking to rebuild, restore, and renew them. But I think what's really important in any story is for us to understand as much as we can the context of where this story fits. So let me bring you up to speed regarding the biblical story. Now, I don't have time. If I had time, I'd start right at the beginning because in any story, the beginning is the right bit. Well, in the beginning, there was God. God created the world. Everything was good and humans wrecked it, okay? And as a result of wrecking it, we got further away from God, further away from each other because sin came in and busted it all up. But God being a God who loves his creation and loves and has a compassion for broken and busted up people made a promise to a man named Abraham. And God chose Abraham and said to Abraham, in and through you, I'm going to make a great nation from your family. And that family, that nation is going to be a blessing to the whole of the world. Now, lo and behold, Abraham and his wife, they have children, even though they didn't think at the time that they could. They had children. And through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Isaac had some, a kid called Jacob, and Jacob had loads of sons, and suddenly this family started to grow, and it started to grow into a nation. As you follow through the story of the Bible, God's people, Abraham's family, this nation now called Israel, found themselves in Egypt. Through God's hand of providence, through His guidance, but Pharaoh, and we learned this when we did Exodus, Pharaoh, one of the kings, didn't know anything of the God who had brought them to Egypt and actually was threatened by Israel and as a result made them slaves. For 400 years, Israel were in slavery. And God in his kindness sends a deliverer by the name of Moses and he delivers them out of slavery. And he takes them through, through plagues that he protects them from, but Israel is destroyed. He then takes them through the Red Sea, and God's people see firsthand how much God loves them. He sees, they see firsthand how much God is guiding them. But what do these people do? When they don't have water, when they don't have food, they began to grumble. Even though God said, I'm going to lead you to a promised land, they began to grumble, and as a result of their doubting God's goodness, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. In fact, the Bible tells us that God allowed his people to wander for 40 years till the whole generation that had left Egypt had been wiped out. And as you read through the Bible, what happens, God's people do enter into the promised land through the leadership of Joshua. And as you see through the book of Joshua and Judges, God drives out his enemies from the promised land, and God's people seem to establish themselves in this promised land. Now again, God's people doubt his goodness, doubt his grace, doubt his mercy, and doubt his kingship. And they get to a point where they're looking around at all the other worlds, and they're like, we haven't got a king like them. We haven't got a king like all the other nations. So they say to God, look, we want a king like all the other nations. God said, you don't need a king. I rule you. I guide you. Look what I've done. No. We want a king like all those other nations. What they wanted was, was somebody that was impressive in their eyes. Somebody that was strong. Somebody who was a warrior in human terms. Even though God had done so much for them, they rejected. So God gives them what he wants. And he provides him with a king by the name of Saul. He was big. He was strong. 
He was attractive. He was everything that they wanted. He was bigger than any other man. But he lacked wisdom. And he lacked grace. And he wasn't able to lead the nation in a good, godly way. And he ended up rejecting God. But God, being a faithful God, remains faithful. And then he does give them a king. He gives them a king with a poet's heart. He gives them a king who has a shepherd's staff. He gives them a king whose heart is after God. A man after God's own heart because his heart was after God. He gives them a king by the name of David. And David rules faithfully. And under his leadership, God's people flourish. But even David was flawed. Even David rejected the goodness of God. And after David, his son Solomon. Now under Solomon, he inherits the kingdom. And during his time as the king, there is peace and there is harmony that is all over his reign. And he builds the temple where God's presence is known amongst his people. But even under the reign of Solomon, there is distortion. He ends up getting caught up in all the riches that he has. Gets caught up in all the, the privileges that he has. And then he begins to fear regarding what comes after him. And he writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says this, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, his own sons. And who knows whether they will be wise or a fool. Even at this point, even Solomon starts to detect What's coming after me is not great. What I'm leaving this kingdom to is not great. And if you know the Bible, what you do, Israel ends up being torn in two. There is great disunity after his reign. The northern kingdom, often referred to as Israel, was ruled by wicked king after wicked king. And the people followed the wicked leaders till they were overthrown and they were conquered and they were swept away into an Assyrian exile in 722 B.C. Ten tribes in the north. And then there was the southern kingdom that is often referred to as Judah. Now, they fare a little better. They, have, they, have, they alternate between a faithful king and an unfaithful king, and they survive a little longer. But again, they too face exile because of their disobedience. And over three different periods, God's people from Judah were taken into exile. And in 586 BC, Jerusalem was ravaged. The temple was destroyed. And the nation carried off into Babylon, into captivity. God's people find that they are slaves again. See, God judges these two kingdoms that came from one that had been torn apart for their own faithfulness. But God remains faithful. God remains merciful. And God waits patiently to pour out his grace upon his people. See, this wasn't a surprise to God, folks. This busting up of the kingdom, this God's people going back into slavery, even though he'd done so much for them. The prophet Jeremiah said this, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. God wasn't surprised. God said, look, if things don't change, this is what's going to happen. If things don't get better, if people don't trust me, if people aren't united together under my reign, this is what's going to happen. For 70 years, you guys will be slaves again. And when you get to the book of 2 Chronicles, which I won't go through because you all know that book really, really well. When you get to the end of 2 Chronicles, we see this light of hope. It says this. 
Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Now what we read there is that something's going to happen. This king, this king that doesn't follow God, is going to declare something. And what he's going to declare is the fulfillment of what God had already said through Jeremiah. So pause what Cyrus is going to say and hear what God had said to Jeremiah. He says this, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. That's what God said to Jeremiah. And at the end of 2 Chronicles, Cyrus is just about to give his fulfillment. And this is what he says, the fulfillment of, of this promise. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house of Ju Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with you. Let him go up. Let God's people go. So God fulfills his promise that God's people would return from slavery through a pagan king. In a way that nobody expected. And what you see through the book of Ezra is that there is a return of God's people over a period of time where the temple is built and the God's presence is, is amongst God's people of which they are built up. And then we land at the book of Nehemiah. So let's read. Nehemiah 1, verses 1 to 4. That's a long introduction, all right? But it's important. Because if I show you a clip in the middle of a film and said, let's talk about this, some of you would not have a clue. Whereas now you know. God's people are starting to return. Now suddenly we hear the life of this man, this last book of the Old Testament, Nehemiah. Let's read verses 1. Of chapter 1. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. Sorry, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twelfth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Folks, the individualistic culture that we live in affects our understanding of what it means to flourish as human beings. Totally. This idea that, that, that flourishing and, and happiness, whatever that means, is, is within me and it's, it's all about me, it, it, it affects our understanding of human flourishing, which in turn affects how we respond to situations outside of us. See, if our approach to human flourishing is about me obtaining and achieving and reaching my individual potential and for me being happy, then this takes priority over all other things. And this takes priority over all other people, people's needs, people's situations. And those of us who are parents, even as we serve our children, we do get to a limit of feeling unappreciated and unfulfilled. And if you don't, you need to write a book about parenting. <laughs> 
See, an individualistic approach to human flourishing, fulfillment, and making sense of life has its limits completely. See, it has its limits in that we come to realize that we can't truly flourish on our own. That we require other people. That we need other people. And it's limiting in that we fail to see the needs of others. And our response to the needs of others is such is that we keep people at arm's length. As Christians, folks, if our approach to life as God's people is individualistic, and we adopt the culture's idea of what it means to be fulfilled, which is all about achieving my happiness and making sure I'm comfortable, then my response to situations in the church will be at best indifferent, and at worst, divisive. Our response to any situation in the church requires an approach to life that is not about the individual, but rather about the needs and situations of others, namely our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you don't agree with that, that means you don't agree with God, because God says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, then love others. Folks, human flourishing is not about me. It's not about me making sense of the world on my own. Human flourishing is rooted in the promises of God, and it's realized enjoyed and enjoyed as being part of the covenant people of God, the church. That's where it's realized. So if that is the case, our response to the brokenness within the church the pain within church family, whether that be in people's needs, sin, the vulnerability of the church and the culture that we find ourselves, should be care. It should be compassion. Our response should be a desire for the health of God's people. And when I say health, I'm not talking, I'm not talking about necessarily and primarily physical health. I'm talking about spiritual health. Spiritual health as God's people, which is manifested in a passion for His glory, a desire to represent him well and for the furtherance of the gospel. That's what it means to be spiritually healthy, to be about his glory. To be somebody and be people who represent him well so that the gospel goes forward in the brokenness of the world where we find ourselves. Folks, when God's people function as we have been called, we flourish and we shine as a city of light in our city. Amen? We do. That's what Jesus says. And the joy of knowing the promises of God and living in the midst of His Word, living that out as a people brings joy which trumps any personal happiness. Because personal happiness, if that's the, the culture's view of flourishing is that I just need to be happy. I was listening to podcasts this week just on the plane, and it was a great podcast, but the, the crux of the question was all about personal happiness. It was all about personal happiness. When personal happiness is always fleeting. See, where human beings flourish is when we know joy. And joy remains in the midst of any cultural tone or temperature. Any situation that you find yourselves in. And folks, as human beings, because we can only find true rest in God, that joy is found in God and His Word. And that joy is found amongst His people. I 
One of our daughters is not well. She's got lots of problems. And I want to tell you this. That is sad. That's a sad situation. But in the midst of the sadness, God's people have responded and God's promises have been affirmed. And that brings joy. Amen? It brings joy. It brings flourishing in the midst of that difficulty. Folks, we need to be honest. We are broken. We are tired. We've been battered, and we're going to be battered still. (laughs) And the temptation to seek fulfillment and flourishing outside of being with God's people is massive. But the truth of who God is remains the same. And His promises for His people stand firm. So we want God, as we walk through this book of Nehemiah, we want Him to rebuild us. We want Him to restore us. And we want Him to renew us to be the people that He has called us to be in this community, in this city, in this country, in this world, at this time, in this generation. Amen? That's what we want. And we want to keep at bay the temptations that come flying from the devil to say that you will flourish outside of this people. That you will flourish outside of these promises that this God has done. Look what God has promised. Look at the state of your life. You will find happiness somewhere else. Folks, I am telling you now, you, will, you may find happiness, fleeting happiness, but you won't find joy. And you won't find stability. And you won't find people who will walk and limp along with you outside of the people of God. You just won't. And that is our hope, that He will rebuild, restore, and renew us to be a people He has called us to be. So my first point, okay, that Nehemiah gets news of concern, verses 1 to 3. See, it's the month of Chislev, which is probably November and December. It's the 12th year, which means it's the 12th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes in Persia. And Nehemiah is in Susa, the citadel, which is like the winter retreat, the winter fortress of the king. And Nehemiah, you read in verse 11 of chapter 1, had a privileged job. He was the cupbearer for the king. His job was to engage with the king every day and to taste the, 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 the wine and the drink and probably the food as well to ensure that it wasn't poisoned. So on one level, he was fed well, but there was always probably a, a nervousness as he had because it could have been his last meal. Now, Nehemiah inquired of Hanani, says they're one of his brothers, and the men that had come with him. And he asked the question regarding the state of the Jews, the state of those who had returned back to Jerusalem. And he asked the question regarding the state of Jerusalem. He was keen to know. He was keen to understand. Now, Nehemiah would have been asking this with a sense of excitement and a sense of anticipation because there'd already been two returns from Persia, Babylon, which was Babylon, Babylon, back to Jerusalem over a period of time. So he would have been excited to see folks. He didn't have like Instagram or Twitter or anything like that. He didn't get the instant news of what was occurring. He'd have to wait for messengers. So as far as he was concerned, God had fulfilled his promises. God's people were returning. Tell me what's going on. I'm excited to hear the stories. I'm excited to know. See, the first return that occurred was in 538 B.C., and you'll read about that in Ezra 1 to 6. And God's people returned back through the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, and they built the temple or sought to build the temple. 
The second return was in 458 BC. You can read about that in Ezra 7 to 10. And that was led through Ezra. And it was about building the nation. It was about building the nation of God's people. Now I'm guessing when he asks Nehemiah of the news, he's awaiting news of positive progress. But what comes is news that was very troubling. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, folks, this is hard for us to, to, to see the trouble in this because today we don't depend on walls and gates for protection for our towns and cities. For us, the walls around towns and cities is a nice day out, isn't it? You know, we wander around the chest of walls or we wander around the, the walls of, of York. But during Nehemiah's day, Having no walls meant that you were vulnerable to outside forces, which meant that you couldn't dictate your own affairs. And for God's people, this was a real issue of stability and also a real issue of purity. See, one of the reasons why they had been sent into exile in the first place was because they'd failed to live as God's people. And they allowed the values of the other nations to penetrate their culture, which caused them to sin against God, not to live in the way that God had called them to live. And that brought distortion, it brought isolation, it brought an increasement of sin and a rejection of each other and a rejection of God. That was the reason why they were sent into exile in the first place. Now, folks, this is the same for us as his people today. We are vulnerable if we fail to live within the safety of being God's people. We are vulnerable to bad influences of our culture that can distort us as people if we try and function out of step with God and His Word and out of step of His people. It's the same for us. If the walls of security and stability have broken down, that stability being the Word of God, that stability being the community of God of which He's called us to be a part of, we are vulnerable to so many other things. Proverbs 25 verse 28 tells us, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. See, it's 1 Peter who says in 2 verse 9, he tells us that we are a holy nation, that we have been set apart by God for him to live in a way that represents God to the world. And as you read through that letter, Peter tells God's people that because we're a holy nation, we are to live in, with a conduct that is holy amongst the Gentiles that we are living in the midst of, honorable and holy. Folks, we are vulnerable when we seek to make sense of life outside of God's Word, but we are also vulnerable when we seek to make sense of living for God isolated from His people. Isolated from his people. See, Proverbs 18 verse 1 says, One who has isolated himself seeks his own desires. He rejects all sound judgment. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. See, folks, God's people were in trouble because their walls were down, there was a stability that had gone, and as a result, the issue of purity was in question. But this trouble also brought great shame, verse 3. Now, this shame was an issue of the glory of God. 
See, two groups of people had already returned to build the temple and to build up the nation, but the walls were still destroyed. And what we'll see from Nehemiah's prayer next week, that he believes that the reputation of God, the God of Israel, is somehow bound up with the condition of Jerusalem. If the walls remain a pile of rubble, then the pagans naturally will assume that the God of Israel is weak, that he's a weak God, he's a weak deity, that he's been overpowered by the idols of Babylon and the idols of Persia. See, God's people had been distracted. The, pe- the people had already returned. They had been distracted by other things, by their own houses when it came to building the temple. And they'd allowed foreign powers to stop them from rebuilding the walls. This issue of stability had gone, and as a result, the purity was busted up and broken, and as a result, it was bringing shame on the gospel. It was bringing shame on the glory of God. See, the pressure of the culture and the desires of the distorted hearts with a misunderstanding of what it meant for them to flourish had put them in a vulnerable position. And this brought shame on the reputation of God, and this for Nehemiah was troubling news. He looked in, and he was troubled. Cornerstone, we are most vulnerable when we are distracted by the cultural pressures around us. We are most vulnerable. We are most vulnerable when we find our confidence in anything outside of him and anything outside of his people. We are vulnerable when we try and make sense of life isolated from his people, and when God's people are divided, isolated from each other, and living like the world, then that is an issue of shame. And when I say shame, not that we as God's people should be walking around feeling shame, but when I say shame, it's because we're not living in a way that God has called us to live, to, to proclaim as excellencies. In fact, those look in and go, there's nothing different about God's people compared to us. There's nothing different to those people who say that they're Christians compared to us. See, folks, it was Jesus who said we are the salt of the world. Jesus said that we, the church, bring flavor to the world. That we, the church, bring healing to the world. But he also said, when salt has lost its saltiness, it's good for nothing. It's not even good enough to throw on the road when there's ice. God's people had returned, but God's people were in great trouble. And that was bringing great shame. And this brings me to my second point, which is Nehemiah's response, which was a response of compassion, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah was living in comfort, folks. He was living in luxury. And he was living in a, he had a privileged position, and he was living 800 miles away. Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. He'd never been. He'd never been. So why should he care? (laughs) Why should he mourn? Why the response of tears? Why the response of weeping? Folks, he weeped because he cared for the covenant people of God. That's why he weeped. He weeped because he cared for the glory of God. See, he cared for the people of God because the glory of God was to be displayed in and through them, and it wasn't. See, folks, a distorted people of God displays a contradiction and a confusion, not the glory of God to a watching world. 
See, Nehemiah weeped because joy and human flourishing was not found in the comfort that he had, but rather in God being glorified through his people. Why should he care? He had everything that this world had to offer. He had a privileged job. He lived in a privileged place. He was 800 miles away. It was out of sight, out of mind. He didn't even have the internet just to, to keep tabs with. As far as he was concerned, he could just shut his eyes off it and enjoy life because life was good. No, he weeped because he cared for the covenant people of God because it is through the covenant people of God that the glory of God is displayed to the world. My question is, do you? My question is, do I? Do I care for the covenant people of God? Or is my faith in Jesus an individualistic faith because it gives me a bit of stability and it gives me a bit of happiness? Or I need to do that because that's what I think the gospel is. Do you care for the covenant people of God? And my next question is, do we care for the glory of God? Because if we care for the glory of God, we care for the state of the church. Because it's through the church that God displays his glory to the world. Amen? Folks, Nehemiah sees God's people in trouble and he responds with compassion. Compassion. See, the question is, is this and should this be the, the way we respond? When God's people are vulnerable, either through isolation or issues of purity and faithfulness, should we respond with tears and mourning when those who God has called to display his glory don't? Should that be our response? Because I'm telling you, I think the response of our hearts, the response of my heart is just to fob them off. That's the deep sin in me. Because life would be so much easier if people just got on board. That is so sinful, folks. That's so wrong. Then those who God has saved and loved, for whatever reason, are, are moving away, or for whatever reason, are vulnerable because of sin, or for whatever reason, are causing issues of divisiveness, whatever that may be, our hearts should be filled with compassion and mourning for them because we care for the covenant people of God. See, the question is, is this response from Nehemiah, is it descriptive? Is it just something that we're being told that's how we respond, or is it prescriptive? Should we as God's people respond the same? See, I think we should. I think this is how we should feel. I think we should have a radical compassion towards God's people when we are vulnerable. That in turn helps us to have a compassion for the lost. Because if God's people don't display his glory, who are going to hear? Who are going to know? See, it was the Lord Jesus in Luke 19, 41, says, it says this. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You missed the point of who I am, and Jesus stands before his covenant people, and they had rejected him, and he weeps. He's filled with compassion. Folks, do we have the same compassion when we think of friends and family who've walked away from Jesus? Do we, do we have that for our own church? Do we? When the church is vulnerable, we should weep. 
When people walk away, we should weep. When people isolate themselves, we should weep. When God's people bring shame and bring the gospel into disrepute, we should weep. When people reject the wonders of the word of God, we should weep. When there is disunity in the church, we should weep. When there is divisiveness in the church, we should weep. When there is gossip, we should weep. When we are captured by the cares of the world and the trappings of this world more than God, we should weep. Why? Because those who are part of the church of Jesus Christ are our family. They're our brothers and sisters. Nehemiah weeped because he looked 800 miles away and his family were in a mess. And no privilege of his world, no position of his world would distract him from his heart being overflown with love and compassion for a broken people. Folks, we should weep in this way because our brothers, these people who are busted up because of the brokenness of the world are our brothers and sisters. And to not be moved to compassion is to show that we care for, more for ourselves than others, more for ourselves than the glory of God, that we don't understand what it is to flourish as human beings, as Christians. We don't understand what it is to know deep joy because when people walk away from what it means to flourish as a human being, in Christ, under God, that should cause us to weep. It should cause us to weep. See, Jesus weeped over Jerusalem, his people who were rejecting him. Do we love the church enough to weep? Do we love our church? It's a question, folks. Do we love our church? Do we love our church? I'm not talking about the service, of which that's part of it. I love it. It's great this morning. Love it. Do we love our church? Do we view each other as brothers and sisters? Or are the people of our church the objects of your gossip and your divisiveness and your frustration? That should not be the case. We need to pray and repent of that. And ask God to give us a compassion for those that don't live 800 miles away. For those that are sat a row behind us or a row in front of us or on the other side of a building. Do we love the church? Do we desire to see all of us as God's people living as his people and in a way that truly displays the glory of God to the world? That's my prayer. See, having compassion for the church is being in tune with God's heart for his people. I pray that that is the case for us, Cornerstone. But it's a compassion for the church, but also a compassion for the lost. Matthew 9 tells us that Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. They were harassed and helpless all over the place, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest field. Jesus saw human beings harassed and helpless, trying to make sense of life all over the place. And what does he say? They're like sheep without a shepherd. They haven't got a clue. And his response isn't get it sorted. His response is compassion. And says to his disciples, pray that there'll be others that would come to proclaim the good news of Jesus in the midst of this harvest field. See, folks, Nehemiah understood the importance of who God's people had been called to be. And they were the means by which God makes his appeal to the world. And as far as he could tell from the news, that was not happening. That was not happening. See, the state of the church affects, determines the effectiveness of our evangelism. Amen? 
Yes, amen. Because if we're reaching friends and neighbors and we invite them into the community of God's people, if the community of God's people do not reflect what we say we believe, we bring more confusion and distortion than we bring life. And Nehemiah's looking in going, they're meant to be proclaiming the excellencies of God, but they're a mess. They're unstable. They're unpure. It's all over the place. And he's filled with compassion because it's in and through how God's people live are his glories displayed to the world. Now, folks, I've got story after story after story after testimony after testimony where God, people have been invited into the community of Cornerstone Church and they've looked in and go, wow, there's something about those people. Praise the Lord for that. So let's not go away discouraged, but at the same time, let's recognize that the, we are in a battle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, and constantly, constantly, constantly the devil is seeking to break down walls of stability. He's constantly trying to bring impurity into the midst of God's people. And we should be, as God's people, be compassionate and then moved, moved for the state of the church and also have compassion for those that we are trying to reach. And this compassion, compassion for God's people, compassion for a lost world, number three, what does it do? It drives him to his knees. He weeps, he mourns, he doesn't just kick into action. No, he turns to prayer. What could he do? He's 800 miles away. And after all, he may have been in a privileged position, but he was still a slave. He was still a slave. Folks, he turned to the one who could do something. Amen? He was driven to his knees. And we'll look more at that next week. The name Nehemiah means Yahweh comforts. Yahweh comforts. God comforts. And he finds himself, Nehemiah, in need of the Lord's comfort when he hears of the trouble. And he is also of what he thinks should be the proof that God continually loves his people seems to be very different. And he needs the comforts of God. I thought the news would be far better than what this is. What are you doing, Lord? And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you need his comfort in the midst of confusion and doubt to how God is working. Maybe you need his comfort because you, you are heartbroken because of the vulnerability of the people within your GC. Maybe you need this comfort because you are heartbroken because of the vulnerability of people within your family. Maybe you're heartbroken because you look around the Cornerstone Church and you just see that we are weak, vulnerable people, which we are, and God can use that and will use that. Maybe we're heartbroken because we see people walking away and see people isolating themselves. Maybe we're heartbroken because of the pressures that we're experiencing to try and find flourishing outside of God and we're struggling and we're fighting and we're trying to find affirmation and maybe the areas that we think affirmation is found are crumbling all around us and we don't know what to do folks we need Yahweh's comfort or maybe you just need comfort from Yahweh because you feel vulnerable and you are struggling with sin and you want to isolate rather than be part of building the people of God. Well, I want to remind you of this. 
that we had one who lived a far greater distance than 800 miles away from his people. That we have one who sat in the most privileged position, the right hand of God the Father, who looked at the brokenness of the world and said to his son, Jesus Christ, go, win, redeem my people. And what you need to do is to give of yourself and I will punish you instead of them because I am a gracious, loving God. And Jesus stands and says, I will go. In obedience to the Father, he is nailed to a cross, taking all our brokenness, all our rejection, all our idea of what it is to, uh, to, to flourish as people, all our sin, all the sins we've ever committed, all the sins that have been committed to us, all the things that we could have done and we didn't do, all the things that we did and we shouldn't do, poured upon the Lord Jesus Christ because he was filled com with compassion for the people that he had created. And God, because he is a just God, dealt with all of that brokenness on Jesus, who was innocent for people like you and me. He was filled with compassion and moved to give of himself for the building up of God's people for the glory of God. And in Christ, folks, even when we feel that there is no stability, we are on firm ground. In Christ, folks, when we feel that the world is smashing us all over the place, we have a safe refuge. In Christ, when we are uncertain about our future and what is to come regarding our children, regarding our lives, regarding grandchildren, regarding our work, regarding our job, regarding our reputation, in Christ, we are safe and we are secure and we are assured of the glory that is to come. See, the wonderful thing that we have in this book of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah will go, Nehemiah will try, Nehemiah will gather God's people, and there will be a, a, a flicker of hope and a flicker of joy and a flicker of glory, but we get to the point, and then we realize that not even Nehemiah, with all his compassion, can build up God's people. Only the coming of Christ, only the life of Christ. Only the death of Christ, only the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Christ will build up broken, vulnerable people who struggle with purity, like you and like me, if we have faith in him. Amen? Amen. Folks, our hope as we walk through this book of Nehemiah is that we'll remind it of the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rebuilt, who restores, and who renews his people. And I hope, like me, you guys are excited to get into this. So can I encourage you, read through the book of Nehemiah this week. Read through it. There'll be parts of it where it'll just be lists of names, which I find the most exciting parts. All right? Okay, so I'm going to geek out on that in a couple of weeks' time. But read it through. Ask God to show you Christ in this wonderful book. Let's pray. Father, thank you and we praise you for your kindness and your goodness to us in all things. And I thank you so much that it's the Lord Jesus that restores, rebuilds, renews. But I do thank you that we have narrative in your word to show the reality of what is occurring in the lives of your people, those who are distorted by sin. And Father, I pray that we would have the compassion of Nehemiah. That actually we, we wouldn't be selfish in trying to see what and, and think about our own flourishing rather than 
recognizing that true flourishing is, is having a heart for others outside of ourselves and knowing the joy that is found in being your people and actually being broken when others miss out on that blessing. And folks, I pray that you would help us to love each other well. Forgive us, Lord, for being frustrated with each other. Forgive us, Lord, for, for being pharisaical towards each other. Forgive us for allowing our precious brothers and sisters at times to become sources of discouragement and frustration. And I ask that you would flip that and make us compassionate people. You and your son, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit had every reason to wipe us off the face of the earth, but you didn't. You showed compassion, and you gave your son for us. We thank you so much for him. We thank you that he is the one that traveled far further than 800 miles to save people because he loved them. And I thank you that we are those people. So as we eat bread and as we drink this wine, we ask that we together would remember how much you did for us in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless us and encourage us as we eat, that we would bless and encourage each other as we eat, and that your spirit would be at work amongst us for your glory's sake. Amen. Folks, we're going to give the bread and we're going to give the wine. And this is, a, a, again, a, a time for us to respond to the preaching of God's word and to know that we who are broken people have been restored by Christ. Amen? And we who are impure in so many ways have been made pure through the blood of Christ. Amen? So as we eat and as we, we drink, let us remember. Well, what, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to take the bread and take the, the wine or the juice, whatever it is. Take it and hold it hold it and what I'd love you to do is to turn one with another to pray with each other because I, I don't want us to hear a sermon about having compassion for other people and then spend our time worshiping God on our own let's turn one with another and let's you know if somebody doesn't want to pray let's pray over them even if we just face each other and hold hands or or whatever is comfortable for you let's pray for each other and you might know know that person or only know them a little well, what a great way to start a relationship what a great way to start a conversation what a great way to get to know family around broken bread and wine that represents our savior jesus christ our big brother so can you hold them and then the guys are going to play some music just play as we do that and then i'm going to get up and read us through parts of the bible that will bring us to eat and bring us to drink because we're going to do this as a sign of our union with God and our union one with another. Is that okay? Let's do that. Thank you. <laughs>